You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour. This is a 60-minute weekly program bringing you a variety of articles from wide-ranging sources. This is being recorded on the 28th of October for the listening week that begins the 29th. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. I'm going to open with two pieces honoring folks that have passed in the month of October. The first one comes from the New York Times obituaries column from Wednesday, October 5th. Charles Fuller, 83, dies. His play won a Pulitzer. Charles Fuller, who won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama in 1982 for A Soldier's Play, which finally made it to Broadway 38 years later in a production that earned two Tony Awards, died on Monday in Toronto. He was 83. His wife confirmed the death. Mr. Fuller was only the second black playwright to win the Pulitzer for drama. Charles Edward Gordon won in 1970 for No Place to Be Somebody. His plays often examined racism and sometimes drew on his background as an army veteran. Both of these elements were evident in A Soldier's Play, which was Mr. Fuller's reimagining of Herman Melville's Billy Budd and centered on the murder of a black army sergeant and the search for the culprit. That play was first staged in 1981 by the Negro Ensemble Company with a cast that included Denzel Washington, Frank Rich, in his review, oh, pardon me, that included Denzel Washington. Frank Rich, in his review in the New York Times, called it a relentless investigation into the complex, sometimes cryptic, pathology of hate, and praised Mr. Fuller's delineation of both the black and the white characters. He said, Mr. Fuller demands that his black characters find the courage to break out of their suicidal, fratricidal cycle, Mr. Rich wrote, just as he demands that whites end the injustices that have locked his black characters into the nightmare. Hollywood came calling a 1984 film version retitled A Soldier's Story and directed by Norman Jewison, had a cast that included Mr. Washington, Howard E. Rollins, Jr., David Allen Greer, Wings Hauser, Adolph Caesar, and Patti LaBelle. It received three Oscar nominations, including one for Mr. Fuller's screenplay. In A Soldier's Play and his other works, Mr. Fuller strove to serve up not idealized black characters, but ones who reflected reality. Forgive me a moment, I forgot to mention who's the writer of this article. It's Neil Genslinger. Continuing. In the 60s and early 70s, black plays were directed at whites. Mr. Fuller told the San Diego Union Tribune in 1984, when the Negro Ensemble Company's production of A Soldier's Play was staged in San Diego. 
He went on, they were primarily confrontational pieces whose major concern was to address racism and white-black relationships in this country. Now we are much more concerned with examining ourselves, with looking at our own situations, historically in many instances. We are seeing characters who are more complex, ones who have bad qualities as well as good ones. End quote. A soldier's play, he told the New York Times in 2020, drew in part on his upbringing in a tough neighborhood in North Philadelphia. He said, I grew up in a project in a neighborhood where people shot each other, where gangs fought each other, not white people, black people, where the idea of who was the best, toughest was part of life. We have a history that's different than a lot of people, but it doesn't mean that we don't cheat on each other, kill each other, love each other, marry each other, do all that. Things that really people anywhere in the world do. Charles H. Fuller Jr. was born on March 5, 1939 in Philadelphia. His father was a printer and his mother, Lillian Teresa Fuller, was a homemaker and foster mother. He was a student at Roman Catholic High School in Philadelphia when he attended his first play, a production performed in Yiddish at the Walnut Theater. I didn't understand a word, he told the Philadelphia Inquirer in 1977, but somehow it sparked his interest in becoming a playwright. He studied for two years at Villanova University and then joined the army where his postings included Japan and South Korea. After four years, he returned to Philadelphia taking night classes at LaSalle College, now LaSalle University, while working as a city housing inspector. In 1968, he and some friends founded the Afro-American Arts Theater in Philadelphia, but they had no playwrights, so Mr. Fuller gave it a try. One result was that his first staged play, The Village, A Party, about a racially mixed utopia, which was produced in 1968 at the McCarter Theater in Princeton, New Jersey. In the 1970s, Mr. Fuller relocated to New York, where the Negro Ensemble Company in 1964 staged his drama In the Deepest Part of Sleep and opened its 10th anniversary season in 1976 with another one of his plays, The Brownsville Raid, which is based on a 1906 incident in Texas in which black soldiers were accused of a shooting. Walter Carr, writing in The Times, praised Mr. Fuller for not making the play a simple story of racial injustice. Mr. Carr wrote, Mr. Fuller is interested in human slipperiness and his skill with self-serving, only slightly shady evasions of duty helps turn the play into the interesting conundrum it is. Although he set out as a playwright to examine difficult questions, Mr. Fuller did so with a certain degree of optimism about the future of the United States. America has the opportunity, with all its technology, to develop the first sensible society in history, he said in the 1977 interview with the Inquirer. 
he went on, it could provide all its people with some rational way to live together while still glorying in their cultural diversity. By the late 1980s, though, he had tired of New York and moved to Toronto, where he was living at, the, at his death. In addition to his wife, he is survived by a son, David, four grandchildren, and three great-grandchildren. A Soldier's Play was finally produced on Broadway in 2020 by the Roundabout Theatre with a cast that included Mr. Greer and Blair Underwood. It was eligible to win the Best Revival Tony, even though it had never been produced on Broadway previously. The more familiar prerequisite for the category, because under Tony rules, it was by 2020 considered a classic. Mr. Greer himself won a Tony for Best Actor in a Featured Role in a Play. Mr. Greer said of Mr. Fuller on Twitter, It has been my greatest honor to perform his words both on stage and screen, adding that his genius will be missed. And once again, for anyone wanting to look up his works, that's Charles Fuller passed away in October. Next, we have also from the New York Times obituary column, this one post was printed on October 17th. Reverend Charles Sherrod, pardon me, that's Sherrod, a civil rights pioneer in Georgia, is dead at 85. Oh, forgive me again, it's of course Sherrod, and here we go. This was written by Clay Risen. The Reverend Charles Sherrod, a quietly stalwart civil rights leader who helped found the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, pardon me, stumbling, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in 1960, became its first field secretary when he took an assignment in rural Albany, Georgia, and remained there to create one of the country's largest and most successful cooperative farms. Died on Tuesday at his home there. He was 85. His wife, Shirley Sherrod, said the cause was lung cancer. Mr. Sherrod, oh, pardon me. This is embarrassing. Um, now I'm being told it is Sherrod. People with this name disagree. But um, Mr. Sherrod drew together the many strands characterizing the younger generation of civil rights leaders that emerged in the early 1960s, including a military urgency, pardon me, a militant urgency, a commitment to grassroots activism, and an open espousal of Christian faith as the engine of the movement. He was among the first black leaders to grasp the importance of field work, moving into a community, building ties with the local leaders, and developing a broad-based coalition of teenagers, college students, and church congregations to advance voting rights and desegregation. Leaving behind a promising academic career, he arrived in Albany in the late summer of 1961. He was fresh off a month-long stay in a South Carolina prison where he and three others had been sentenced to hard labor after a lunch counter sit-in. 
The four had refused bail, chosen instead to expose the cruelty of a system that punished black people for the simple act of trying to buy a sandwich. Working alongside two other young organizers for SNCC, SNCC, Cordell Reagan and Charles Jones, Mr. Sherrod spent months winning the trust of those in Albany's black community, who for generations had been terrorized by their white neighbors. They focused on the city's youth, especially the students at Albany State College, a black institution. Their first protests, including an attempt to desegregate the city bus depot, pardon me, bus depot, resulted in hundreds of arrests, so many that the Albany jail overflowed and protesters were sent to neighboring counties. The experience of watching their children get arrested galvanized parents at a meeting in the winter of 1961, thousands of people turned out, filling two neighboring churches. The next few months saw more protests en masse and individually. It was just a great joy, Mr. Sherrod said in a 2011 interview with the Library of Congress, to find the same old people bent over talking with their heads down were now talking with their heads up and speaking to white people without fear and demonstrating, going into the store and taking, trying on a hat and picking stories who would not change in their morals. Oh, please forgive me again. I guess my lighting's not good. Um, I'm going to read that sentence again. We were with people bent over, talking with their heads down. They were now talking with their heads up and speaking to white people without fear and demonstrating, going in the store and taking, trying on a hat and picketing stores who would not change in their morals. Mr. Sherrod, a gifted singer, encouraged a quartet at Albany State College called the Freedom Singers to join the movement. They provided its soundtrack before going on to tour the country alongside Pete Singer, Joan Baez, and Bob Dylan. The white community pushed back. During one march, a white mob attacked Mr. Sherrod with axe handles, beating him over the head and sending him to the hospital. Joyce Barrett, a white civil rights worker who had moved in Al to Albany from Philadelphia to work with Mr. Sherrod, remembered getting a call from a team of SNCC workers who were being followed by a group of armed white men. We drove to get them, and then we were followed by the white men, too, she said in a phone interview. But Sherrod didn't panic. It's because of his quiet determination and calmness that we are alive today. The Albany movement attracted national attention, and the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. came to town in the winter of 1961 to help lead the effort. But instead of meeting the protesters with billy clubs and police dogs, the chief of police, Laurie Pritchett, kept a low profile to, as he put it, out nonviolent them. You know, Sherrod, it's just a matter of mind over matter. He recalled Mr. Pritchett telling him, I don't mind and you don't matter. 
The strategy worked, and Dr. King left in August of 1962 without achieving any meaningful commitment to desegregation. The news media and even parts of the civil rights movement wrote off Albany as a failure. Mr. Sherrod and his SNCC colleagues saw things differently. He inspired hundreds of students and young people to commit to field work, embedding for months and even years in rural communities. And the Albany movement offered a model for organizing a local community to fight for its rights. He was the first person in SNCC to leave school to become a full-time field secretary. Cortland Cox, another founder of SNCC, said in an interview, he set the standards for a number of us who left school to become field workers in the civil rights movement. Even as other civil rights workers moved on, Mr. Sherrod stayed in Albany. He married a local woman, Shirley Miller, and built a robust voting rights effort and later a sprawling cooperative farm. Aside from a two-year stretch in New York to complete a master's degree in divinity from Union Theological Seminary, he lived in Albany the rest of his life. He had a firm belief in the goodness of others, said Mr. Cox, of his ability to change men's minds and try to convince them of the truth of a beloved community, of a just society. Charles Melvin Sherrod was born on January 2, 1937, in Surrey, a small town in southeast Virginia. His mother, Martha, me, Martha May Walker Sherrod, was just 14 when she gave birth to him. His father, Raymond, left the family when Charles was an infant. Along with his wife, he is survived by his daughter, Russia Sherrod, his son, Kenyatta, his brothers, Ricardo and Roland Sherrod and Michael Gibson, his sister, Shielda Fobbs, and five granddaughters. After Mr. Sherrod's father moved away, his mother took her children to nearby Petersburg, where she worked in a tobacco factory. Charles excelled at school. He sang in the choir and served as class president his senior year. He received a sociology degree from Virginia Union University in Richmond in 1958 and a master's in divinity from the university's theolog theology school in 1961. By then, he was already a movement veteran. In college, he participated at, in a kneel-in at an all-white church and led a sit-in at a Richmond department store. He was present at the creation of SNCC at a conference at Shaw University in Raleigh, North Carolina, in 1960, and was active in both sit-ins and the Freedom Rides that erupted in 1961. During a meeting with Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy and several other civil rights leaders in Washington that summer, the normally reserved Mr. Sherrod exploded in anger when Kennedy tried to persuade them to drop the Freedom Ride strategy. He said, You, sir, are a public servant, and your job is not to tell us what to do, but to protect us when we exercise our constitutional rights. This was said by Taylor Branch, the author of a three-part biography of Dr. King, when she was speaking in an interview. Pardon me, that's a he. He, Mr. Branch, also went on. 
Somebody told me that he had to literally grab Charlie Sherrod by the belt because he was incensed that Bobby Kennedy was telling them what to do. Mr. Sherrod had an opportunity to teach at Virginia Union, but he chose instead to work for SNCC full-time, offering to, quote, go anywhere. Ella Baker, one of the organization's senior leaders, sent him to Albany. Mr. Sherrod was always committed to biracial activism, believing that working alongside white people was the only way to persuade rural southern black people that they were their equals. As the late, oh, pardon me, as the 60s wore on, many in SNCC came to disagree. He ended his relationship with the group in 1966 after its central committee rejected his plan to invite white students to work in Albany. He said, I didn't leave SNCC. SNCC left me. In 1968, he traveled to Israel to study the Moshav, or collective farm, movement. When he returned, he and his wife arranged funding to buy thousands of acres of land near Albany. They called it New Communities, and it was the largest black-run farm cooperative in the country. It didn't last, though. It went bankrupt in 1985 after years of drought and after banks and the government refused to extend relief loans. Afterward, Mr. Sherrod served in the Albany city government, taught at Albany State, and worked as a chaplain in a nearby prison. Mr. Sherrod, oh, pardon me, Ms. Sherrod went to work for the Department of Agriculture, eventually becoming its rural coordinator for Georgia. She was forced to resign in 2010 after the right-wing blogger Andrew Beitbart promoted a video of a speech she had given deceptively edited to make it seem as if she advocated discrimination against white farmers. When the full video surfaced a few days later, the Obama administration apologized and offered her a different job, which she declined. A year later, the Sherrods joined a successful class-action lawsuit against the Department of Agriculture for loan discrimination. The money they received allowed them to buy a former plantation, which they converted into a new cooperative farm. They called it Rizora, and they, re pardon me, they relished the turn of history that allowed the descendants of enslaved people to own property where their ancestors had once toiled. Once again, that's the Reverend Charles Sherrod, a civil rights pioneer in Georgia, who is dead at 85 in the month of October. Our next article is a review of a book. This comes from the Wall Street Journal's print edition, October 27th. On Freedom Road, A Forgotten Hero. This is written by Roger Lowenstein from their bookshelf column, Vigilance by Andrew K. Dimer, D-I-E-M-E-R, is the book being reviewed. What was the Underground Railroad? A common impression is that it was wholly improvised, or nearly so. According to Andrew K. Dimer, a historian at Towson University, the route north was often tightly organized. At one of its stations, a meticulous clerk in Philadelphia guided hundreds of African Americans to freedom. 
Though little known today, William still assisted runaways on their often dramatic flights with carefully record pardon me, and carefully recorded the details, down to the one dollar and twenty five cents he expended for one John Henry Hill in eighteen fifty three. Still's copious records formed the basis of the Underground Railroad from eighteen seventy two which was his 800-page account of these pilgrimages and a primary source for Mr. Dimer's biography, Vigilance, the Life of William Still, Father of the Underground Railroad, which retrieves an important piece of American history. Aside from his efforts helping fugitive slaves, Still was a prominent black leader before and after the Civil War. He was also a businessman, and a missionary for black self-help. He assisted Harriet Tubman and kept company with Frederick Douglass. He was an early crusader for civil rights, and the abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison gave a speech to raise money for his work. Vigilance fulfills the purpose that Mr. Dimer lays out, to remedy Still's erasure from historical memory. Born in 1821, William Still was the youngest of 18 children growing up in the Pinelands of southern New Jersey. His stern father put him to work chopping wood and hired him out, leaving little time for school. Restless in his father's domain, he struck out for Philadelphia and a string of menial jobs. There were strains of young, young Abe Lincoln in his story, though Still, of course, faced the added burden of the color line. In New Jersey in the 1820s and 30s, slavery was only in the midst of gradual abolition, and it cast a shadow over William's childhood. His father had been emancipated in Maryland, and his mother, also from Maryland, was a fugitive and menaced by the threat of slave catchers. Young William and his brothers were bullied by white children, the psychic scars must have been deep. William embarked on a lifelong pursuit of respectability, not only cajoling fellow blacks to better their stations, but haranguing those given to, quote, frivolity or idleness. Still got his break in Philadelphia when he landed a job at the pardon me, Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society, the hub of a network of abolitionists. Though hired as a clerk, he quickly assumed a larger role. Society members, aside from agitating for legal emancipation, were associated with the separate efforts of the Vigilance Committee, which actively assisted runaways. In 1852, the Mixed Race Committee was reorganized and still named its acting chair. His duties included arranging passage for fugitives Pennsylvania, a free state, was too close to slave country to be considered safe. Still and his wife, Letitia, while raising four children, often put up his charges. Then he sent them on, generally to New England or Canada. He coordinated with allies in Harrisburg and other railroad stops. Sometimes he worked with sympathetic Southern agents who conspired with escaping slaves. He also corresponded with runaways desperately seeking word of family members. My soul is vexed, wrote one lonely refugee in Canada. 
Mr. Dimer focuses on the border states, the source of many runaways. Fear of being sold to the Deep South was a frequent goad to flight. In Maryland and Virginia, as farmers diversified out of cotton, slavery became less lucrative. Some masters permitted slaves, including Still's father, to work on the side and buy their freedom. With freedom so near but not always attainable, Mr. Dimer writes that, quote, the borderlands of slavery were always a place of struggle. The Fugitive Slave Act, part of the Compromise of 1850, required northern officials to return runaways, but proving that a black was in fact an escaped slave was not always easy. A deadly game of cat and mouse developed. Slave catchers advertised rewards and hired pursuers. Still and other agents for the Underground Railroad sent warnings, often by telegraph, to alert slaves on the run. On one occasion, Still physically intervened in a rescue. One of his most dramatic cases was that of Henry Brown, an enslaved tobacco worker in Richmond, Virginia, who had witnessed his wife and children roped at the neck, being hauled off to North Carolina. Having saved some money, he paid a friendly shopkeeper to, quote, mail him by crate to Philadelphia. When the crate arrived at Still's office, it was sawed open, and Brown fainted. Henry Box Brown survived and became an abolitionist celebrity. Other fugitives were crammed into a suffocating niche near the boiler on a steamboat. A less fortunate fugitive, trekking from Maryland in a wintry march, arrived at Still's office with severe frostbite, and he soon died. One of the more painful parts of vigilance concerns Still's provisional-seeming status, even as a prosperous coal merchant. In racially volatile Philadelphia, he naturally felt wary of inflaming white prejudice. During the Civil War, he warned blacks to greet the Emancipation Proclamation with sober discipline, not parading and celebrating. Post-war, he fought for civil rights at home, including voting rights. Wearying of partisan politics, he emphasized black responsibility, lecturing night students, quote, the main part of elevation must be performed by colored men themselves. Still's counsel was wise, but not always appreciated, perhaps because he sounded sanctimonious. According to an associate, he laughed, but never boisterously. He became controversial in the black community for his seeming elitism, as when he complained of the unfairness of discriminating against, quote, respectable blacks on streetcars. His central mission, as Mr. Dimer points out, was to persuade society that blacks had the ability to improve their own lives. He played down his role and that of his white colleagues, in helping runaways. His heroes were the fugitives, whom he called the most able-bodied, intelligent, and brave of their class. And that title of the book, again, is on, no, pardon me, pardon me, it is Vigilance by Andrew K. Dimer.
And next we have some food news. I'm going to turn to the root.com for the next article, which was published on the 27th. Memphis Chocolatier has turned candy making into an art form. Philip Ashley Chocolates has lots of famous fans, including Stevie Wonder and Oprah Winfrey. This was written by Angela Johnson. When it comes to luxury chocolates, Philip Ashley Ricks has the game on lock. His Philip Ashley chocolates have earned him celebrity fans, including Stevie Wonder, as well as a place on Oprah's coveted favorite things list. Just one glance at his menu will leave your mouth watering. He's got lots of creative ways to satisfy your sweet tooth, including handcrafted caramels infused with Kentucky straight bourbon in a dark, pardon me, dark chocolate shell. And if you're looking for something savory, his soul food collection includes flavors like Memphis-style barbecue sauce blended with dark chocolate and deep-frying chicken skins blended with blonde chocolate and smoked sea salt. But the guy Forbes calls the real-life Willy Wonka never imagined he'd have a career in candy making. The Root had a chance to speak with Philip Ashley Ricks about how he's managed to make a living making chocolate. Growing up in Memphis, Ricks said he was a kid with a vivid imagination and says Fraggle Rock, Reading Rainbow, and Lego were among his favorite things. Although he's always loved cooking and grew up in the kitchen with his grandmother, Ricks said he never thought about a career in the food industry. I went to school for chemistry and originally planned to go to medical school, he said. I ended up in the business world in the logistics supply chain with consumer packaged goods. But in 2007, Ricks, who has always been a fan of the Willy Wonka story, decided he wanted to do something different. I woke up at three one morning and decided I wanted to be a chocolatier and make chocolate for the rest of my life, he said. Using his background in chemistry, Ricks spent the next three years teaching himself to make chocolate. I learned the history of chocolate, its West African origins, and how nearly 70% of the world's chocolate comes from West Africa, he said. But he also wanted to incorporate his love of art to make something beautiful. My uncle is a professional painter, and he used to take me to art galleries. He exposed me to Basquiat, Basquiat and Monet at a young age, and how, oh, pardon me, and now I try to implement that into what we do visually and how we present our chocolate, he said. When asked to name his favorite chocolate, Ricks said he hasn't made it yet, and he doesn't want to. When I set on this path, I wanted to be able to make chocolate 365 days a year and be able to sell it. My approach to chocolate is about being able to turn a concept into a flavor and communicating that flavor through chocolate. And for anyone that wants to look him up, he's got a website, philipashleychocolates.com. 
And along the same lines, or similar lines, I'm going to turn to the New York Times print edition from October 5th again. West African chefs go fast casual. This is written by Kayla Stewart, seeking a wider audience in America for bold flavors. This is Dateline Houston. At Post Houston, a popular food hall, the lines stretch long for chopping block where the Nigerian-American owner Ope Omosu offers a familiar customizable template, rice, vegetables, protein, that are deeply influenced by his West African pride and his London-born, Houston-raised identity. Take the golden, a nod to the gold coast of West Africa, and to Mr. Amosu's stint as a prep cook at Chipotle while still working as a corporate sales executive. The hearty meal includes smoky jollof rice with a Creole twist, plantains, roasted cauliflower, and Brussels sprouts, and comes with a vegan honey bean coconut curry that's at once sweet and alluringly tangy. To top it all, customers can choose from various proteins marinated in Cameroon pepper. The traditional West African restaurants that dot southwest Houston are cozy, dimly lit spaces and often family-owned. But at restaurants like Chop and Block, which regularly appears on the city's dining lists and is lauded on social media by celebrities like the Insecure star Yvonne Orji and the rappers Jadina and Whale, possibly mispronounced, Pardon me, please forgive me. The West African flavors and staples are quicker, more casual, and, their owners argue, more accessible to non-African diners. We're not trying to convince people our food is good or worthy. We already know that it is, said Mr. Omosu. I am, however, trying to tell our story and welcome people in who may be nervous about going to a place that feels a little bit unfamiliar. In food halls, strip malls, and shopping centers across the United States, fast casual West African restaurants are proliferating, and the second-generation owners behind them are at once showcasing the range of these cuisines and debunking reductive myths about them. At the Senegalese chef Pierre Thiam's restaurant Taranga in New York City, deeply flavored customizable grain bowls help to counter racist Western perceptions that can diminish the value of the region's cuisine. Mr. Tiam said, I hope that it helps dispel the lies that make you think of Africa as a continent of scarcity. There's so much abundance and so much creativity that's coming from the continent, and we get to show them that story through our food. The fast-casual model allows West African chefs to preserve the region's classic flavors as well as incorporate elements of their American upbringings in a format that is recognizable to diners less familiar with the cuisine. We're creating a gateway to West African food, said Olomide Shokumbi, the owner of Spice Kitchen in Brentwood, Maryland. Like Mr. Omosu, Mr. Shokumbi, attended the School of Chipotle, one of the nation's best examples of fast, casual success. During college, he began working at a Chipotle franchise on the side as he explored opening his own business. His space kitchen, 
adopts some central components of the fast casual model, biodegradable serving bowls, customizable meals, and a varied interpretation of storied cuisines. Since it opened last fall, the restaurant has offered salmon and shrimp alongside suya, which is Nigerian seasoned, skewered, and grilled meats, and sides like spinach, efo, riro, jollof rice, and grilled corn. At Suya Suya West African Grill in Philadelphia, the owner Dara Nde Ezuma, who developed a love for tacos after immigrating from Abuja, Nigeria, to New Jersey in 2007, takes a similar approach to amplify traditional dishes like steak marinated in Nigerian and yaji. Mr. Nde Ezuma leans into his love of tacos and offers them filled with chicken and steak suya in the requisite brown-to-go container. There's a reason why our restaurants are finding success, he added. People want to experience this cuisine, and they want to do it in a way that feels comfortable. Having gone to many of the city's more conventional Nigerian restaurants, Mr. Ndeizuma said he sometimes found the atmosphere intimidating. When I get to go to African restaurants and I try to order... The menu can be a little bit overwhelming, so I can only imagine what it's like for non-Africans, he said. Citing a psychology construct called openness to experience, which is a high predictor of whether someone would try a different cuisines, Jermaine Awad, a professor of psychology at the University of Michigan, said that it's not how something is served that draws patrons in, but rather their natural curiosity levels. The growing interest in West African food within the restaurant industry aligns with immigration trends. The more folks that come, the higher the demand for food that's authentic and a true reflection of that community, said Mr. Awad, Ms. Awad, pardon me. In 1980, there were about 40,000 West African immigrants living in the United States according to data from the Pew Research Center. By 2019, that number had grown to 890,000. Nigerian immigrants are the largest group from the region with the most sizable communities living in cities like Atlanta, Dallas, Houston, New York City, and Washington. The inevitable expansion of fast, casual West African restaurants will continue bringing these foodways to the forefront of American dining, an overdue change, Ms. Awad believes, in the culinary world. It's not just enough to have these restaurants available to people. This cuisine has to be recognized for how complex and amazing it is, she said. That's the true next step for expanding the idea of the average culinary experience in the United States. At Taranga in San Francisco, no relation to Mr. Tiam's restaurant, the Senegalese chef Nafi Flatli Ba creates dishes like chicken drumsticks marinated in baobab, teramend, and Dijon, which is a family specialty. Highlighting Senegalese flavors is a priority for Ms. Flatli Ba, but equally important is showing that women can and should play a leading role in contemporary West African dining. It hasn't been easy to introduce fast, casual, yet super nutritious and healthy West African food, Ms. Flatley Bai said. 
but I have been doing it. Some conventional West African diners might complain that the foods at these fast casual restaurants aren't traditional. But that's not Mr. Asam, pardon me, Amosu's primary concern at Chop and Block. The restaurant is a chance to revel in his heritage by creating dishes that expand on the narratives of the region's cuisines. Our stuff bangs, too, and everybody should know about it, he said. There's no reason why we should be so insular with the pride that we have for our culture. Authenticity and fast casual service aren't mutually exclusive, and Hema Agu and Folusho Adeyemo, the Nigerian-American owners of Brooklyn Suya in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, have no interest in compromising West African flavors to please Western appetites. Mr. Agu said, It's all about finding the balance of being both authentic and contemporary, you know, and open for a new audience. That menu reflects multiple cultures, integrating American ingredients like kale and avocado into their suya bowls, which can come with shrimp, chicken, eggplant, or tofu marinated in suya spice. But the real common ground, Mr. Agu said, comes on the side. He said, Americans love sauce. We have to give the people what they want. Next article for music lovers. This is regarding um, a show that is available currently on PBS Television Review, written by John Anderson. An opportunity for jazz lovers. One of the great things about Let My Children Hear Mingus is that it's on television at all. Never mind that it opens with about ten solid minutes of blistering jazz and limits the usual documentary gasbaggery to people who know what they're talking about. What has often been called American classical music is the focus of what is mostly a performance special, a celebration of the centenary of Charles Mingus, bassist, composer, bandleader, seminal figure in bebop, hardbop, postbop, free jazz, and third-stream music. Someone who was politically aware and complicated. That he was an irascible character comes through. So does the compositional glory of several of his pieces. Although there is no officiating at the Kennedy Center, no master of ceremonies, no recognition from the stage of why anyone is there on that particular date, parentheses, which is April 8th. Mingus's 100th birthday was April 22nd. There is a smattering of tributes from musicians who knew Mingus and played with him. The saxophonist Charles McPherson appears and performs. The flautist James Newton talks about Mingus the man. Included, too, are some musical acolytes, among them jazz evangelist evangelist, pardon me, and bassist Christian McBride, and the keyboardists Jason Moran and Robert Glasper and Georgia Ann Muldrow, who, with Mr. Moran, contributes a version of the classic Goodbye Pork Pie, pardon me again, Goodbye Pork Pie Hat, which is a tribute to tenor saxophonist Lester Young, replete with synthesizer and vocalese. If nothing else, the moment indicates how ripe for reinterpretation the Mingus catalog might be. 
It also feels like an effort to make Mingus, quote, relevant, and nothing could be more unnecessary. Purists won't be disappointed. They might even feel nostalgic. The first number by the Mingus Big Band, which occupies the Kennedy Center stage virtually throughout, is Boogie Stop Shuffle, a scorcher off the landmark Mingus Ah Um of 1959. Likewise, Fables of Faubus, which appeared on that same album, but without, at the insistence of Columbia Records, the lyrics that excoriated Orville Faubus, the segregationist governor of Arkansas. They did appear on a later version and are delivered in the special. In an early 2000s interview on NPR, Sue Mingus, who died this September 24th, said her husband often attached random titles to works, some of which sounded political but weren't necessarily. Falbus is not one of those. It would be nice to know who is doing what, the French horn player, for instance, who delivers the Mingus poetry as well as an exuberant solo, who is playing the double bass which Mingus was on which Mingus was a virtuoso, who are the various soloists on Peggy's Blue Skylight or So Long Eric, which Mingus wrote for the multi-instrumentalist Eric Dolphy. Not making an effort to say who he, or in one case, she is, among the players feels blasé, if not downright disrespectful, not just to them, but to us. The music gets so little respect from television that perhaps jazz lovers should be happy with what they are given, but that certainly isn't something Mingus would have to put up with. Oh, pardon me. Isn't something Mingus would have put up with. This originally aired on a Friday at 9 p.m. The 14th, I believe, of October. But it's still available. It's still available for streaming. Pardon me. And it's called Let My Children Hear Mingus. Moving to theroot.com for a political piece written by Marjani Rawls. It was published on the 28th. Run for something. Political director Quentin Savoie wants us to fight to preserve our democratic process. The political director discusses preserving democratic policies, battling misinformation, and handling discourse. A week and a half before the 2022 midterm elections, there has been a lot of anxiety and uncertainty around the electoral process. Not only have there been a rash of voter intimidation tactics that early voters have experienced in states like Arizona, but there has also been extreme misinformation around the voter process, lessening people's confidence in the voting process around election results. This is why Run for Something, political director Quentin Savoie, has been adamant about his organization's fight to preserve democracy. Since 2017, they've got, pardon me, they've helped get 600 people elected to office. Their Clerk Work initiative is looking to recruit and train up to 5,000 election administrators within the next two years. Figures like Savoir have committed to the challenging work 
on the ground to make sure our democratic processes don't fall into the hands of figures who will only use it to their advantage. The political director spoke to The Root about how Run for Something is fighting back against misinformation campaigns, how the organization is preparing its candidates against possible violence, and how vital the discussion is to preserving democracy. This is the interview. The Root. Voters across the country have been rightfully focused on which party will control the House and Senate after midterm elections. However, it's important equally to look at local and state representatives. These people will be certifying election results and ensuring voter registration forms are up to speed. Many candidates tried to overturn or reject the results of the 2020 presidential election. How does the mission of Run for Something intend to impede this so that we don't backslide into a dangerous place? Quentin Savoir. Run for Something's mission is to build a bench of future political leaders under the age of 40. They are also people of color that are, quite frankly, progressive and believe in the value of having a more equitable world. I think with our clerk work initiative, we have taken on this challenge. I'm not just recruiting people to run for down-ballot office and local election administrator. It's also a matter of educating the public about why the Office of Election Administrator is so important. For a long time, we've focused on those high-level offices like the Presidency or the Senate. The reality is that local election administrators protect our society and our way of life. If we don't have pro-democracy people running elections, it's a disruption no matter where you come from. Many people believe that to run, you have to have some special degree or a PhD. Not at all. You don't have, pardon me, you have to care about an issue in your community that you want to improve. In the case of an election administrator, you have to care about safe, fair, and accurate elections. It doesn't require much more than that. The root. In recent weeks, there has been a noticeable uptick in threats against voters and poll workers. In Arizona, there was an, instant of an instance of voter intimidation referred to the DOJ. The NYPD put out a bulletin to be on high alert for the possibility of violence against election workers. How do you prepare your candidates to protect themselves? That's one that I wrestled with in trying to figure out what is the best thing to share with our candidates. As a community organizer, I wonder how I best show up for people administering our elections. I think the most important thing that any of us can do is to speak out against misinformation and the seeds of distrust that are sown in the process. A lot of times we shy away from having those challenging conversations that might make folks uncomfortable. Confrontation does not have to equal violence. It can just mean, okay, we have a difference in understanding. A functional democracy says you can have your idea and I can have my idea. Then we'll see, as these ideas compete, which view prevails. We want to ensure our candidates are attentive to their surroundings. If they encounter an intimidating voter, we've provided tips on language to use when they are verbally confronted. Seek assistance if you feel like you're being violently threatened from local law enforcement. That's, oh, pardon me, if you're being threatened from local law enforcement that's present or other community members. 
The Root asks, in speaking about misinformation, I'm sure that is something run for some, that something run for something candidates have had to fight back against. You've even had some candidates say they will reject results outright. In your opinion, what's the best thing we can do to combat this? I think the first important thing is setting public expectations. There are a lot more states now that do vote by mail. The days of finding out the election results the night of are behind us. That is mainly because we want to ensure that things are being done fairly and accurately. We also need to recognize democracy doesn't do well on autopilot. It requires us to have conversations and be able to say something. Having a civil society is being able to agree on fundamental things. From there, we'll find the fertile ground to have more challenging conversations, which will, over time, suppress this fire of misinformation that's gotten out of hand in our country. It makes me grateful for the work that Run for Something is doing and for identifying pro-democracy candidates. These candidates believe in accessible election cycle elections and accurate elections. It takes courage to run for office when misinformation is everywhere. And that brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us for the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is brought to you in part by the Broomfield Community Foundation. Broomfield's leading partner and voice for philanthropy since 1993. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.